I imagine that you have heard the old adage that history repeats itself. It does, especially when we fail to appreciate and learn the lessons that we should gain from history. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 admonishes us that these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Scripture says that we are to learn from the examples and the acts of God in past history. So we ask the question, what can we learn from these historical narratives that are going to be considered this morning? What is there in these narratives from which we can profit? Our passage this morning bears obvious similarities to the coalition of Jehoshaphat with Ahab in the battle against Ramoth Gilead back in 1 Kings chapter 22. And as we've been working our way through 1 and 2 Samuel and 2 Kings, we encountered that battle in 1 Kings chapter 22. And I, I want us to see this morning how there is this repetition in the history of Israel. There are some striking similarities between 1 Kings chapter 22 and the passage which we are in this morning. There, in fact, there are four. The first similarity is the phrase used by Josephat in a willingness to form a coalition with the king of Israel. In 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 7, it says that he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab, has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And now these words. And he said, I will go. I am as you are. My people as your people. My horses as your horses. Which are the same words that Jehoshaphat spoke back in 1 Kings chapter 22 when Ahab had approached him about going to war. 1 Kings 22, 4, and he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. The second similarity is seen in Jehoshaphat's desire to hear from a prophet of the Lord. In 1 Kings chapter 3, 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 11, it reads, And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? This is an echo of what Jehoshaphat had said to Ahab back in 1 Kings 22. 1 Kings 22, 7, Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? The third similarity is that Jehoshaphat is found in both of these, these passages. And the fourth similarity, and the most noteworthy this morning, is the distinction that God makes between Jehoshaphat and the king of Israel. In 1 Kings chapter 22, it's the distinction that God makes between Jehoshaphat and Ahab. And now today, it's the distinction that God makes between Jehoshaphat and uh, Jehoram. In Chapter 22 of 1 Kings, if you remember, uh, Josephat's life is spared in battle. Even though he goes in full array, dressed like a king, nevertheless, his life is spared when they find out that it's not the king of Israel, but it's the king of Judah, and so Josephat's life is spared. But the life of Ahab is taken. In our passage, 
Josephat is heard when Jehoram would not be heard. Verses 13 and 14 of 2 Kings 3. Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord host lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Josephat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. What I want to emphasize this morning is that God makes a distinction in the way that he deals with his own from the way in which he deals with those that do not belong to him. That distinction is repeated time and time and time again in the word of God. In fact, I would submit to you that it is the primary lesson to be learned from the accounts of the kings in 1st and 2nd Kings, that those kings that belong to God have a very different experience with God than those kings who do not belong to God. And that distinction has tremendous ramifications. We must never lose sight of the distinction that God makes in dealing with those who belong to him and those who do not. God is a very different God to those who know him and to those who do not know him. And it is that that we want to explore this morning. We begin by noting that Jehoram does not belong to God. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, if you turn there with me, it says, In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. The narrative now moves to an assessment of Jehovah's spiritual, excuse me, of Jehoram's spiritual condition. He's a person who committed evil in verse 2. It says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now he did less evil than his parents had done, verse 2, though not like his father and mother. And the way that he did less evil was in not personally engaging in Baal worship. It tells us at the end of verse 2, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Ahab and Jezebel were devout worshipers of Baal. Jehoram is not. It says that he put it away in the sense that he did not worship Baal at all. However, he did not destroy the Baal worship, nor did he destroy the pillar to Baal. That doesn't come into 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, under the kingship of Jehu. But he himself was not involved in Baal worship. Nevertheless, Jehoram failed to do what he should have done, and that is to worship the true and living God in spirit and in truth. For notice verse 3, it says, Nevertheless, even though he did not worship Baal, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. The sins of Jeroboam that Jehoram perpetuated were not related to Baal worship. They were related to a false worship of Jehovah God. Remember that Jeroboam had created calves 
that were to be worshipped. And he said, behold, your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's not who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. It was not these calves that were created. And if you remember, in order to keep the children of Israel going back to worship in Jerusalem because the kingdom had been divided in the north and south between Israel and Judah. And Jeroboam was afraid that if the Israelites would go back to Jerusalem to worship, that eventually the kingdom would become reunited. Instead, he established this false worship to mimic, to look like the true worship, but it was far different. Although it had outward similarities, it had priests. The priests weren't appointed by God, they were appointed by Jeroboam. Though they were offering sacrifices, they were not sacrifices offered to the true and living God. They were the sacrifices that were offered to these idols. Though they had prophets, they were not prophets who were speaking the truth of the word of God, but they were speaking what the king wanted to proclaim. So it was a false worship. Jehoram is said to have clung to that false worship. Notice verse 3. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. It's a stronger word than just followed or participated in the worship. He doggedly and repeatedly refused to give it up, which comes at the end of verse 3. It says he did not depart from it. Though he was warned, though he was confronted, though he heard time and time again about the false nature of that worship, he continued in it. And as a result, though not a worshiper of Baal, he was not a worshiper of the true and living God either. And so he was not accepted by God. He did not belong to God. He was not one of his. As we think about the application of this first section, we can note that, that God recognizes that there are degrees of evil. There are some people that perpetuate a greater evil than do others. And, and we're going to see that even in this passage, for at the end of the passage, we see that the king of Moab sacrifices his child to the god of Chamoth. Well, Israel is not offering their children to a false god in the time of Jehoram, things could have been worse than what they are. Nevertheless, lesser evils are still evil. And many times, lesser evils are much more subtle in the harm that is brought by them as opposed to the flagrant evils. We can readily see flagrant evil and its consequences, but lesser evils sometimes are more obscure. But they are sin, and they contribute to other people's sinning as well. But most importantly, just because a person does less evil than another does not mean that they're acceptable to God. One doesn't have to be thoroughly, thoroughly wicked in terms of what we think of in terms of great wickedness. One does not have to be an Adolf Hitler in order to be separated from God. One can be outwardly a, a pretty moral individual that isn't responsible for the genocide of 
hundreds of thousands of people, and yet still find themselves not acceptable to God, not a true worshiper of him. There is a distinction to be made between those who know God and those who do not. Now let's see the distinction between Josephat and Jehoram, how it unfolds in the text. War is planned against Moab, and the reason for the war was the economic hardship that Israel suffered as a result of Moab's rebellion, verses 4 and 5. Now, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And there is a king between Jehoram and Ahab, lasted two years. And so this rebellion has been going on. And Jehoram looks for help in reconquering Moab. First, he seeks the help of Josephat, king of Judah, verse 6. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel, and he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you give, go with me to battle against Moab? So he's looking for reinforcements. Jehoshaphat agrees to go with him into battle. End of verse 7. He said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Again, familiar and similar to what Joseph had said and done in 1 Kings chapter 22. And he said, Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to the battle of Remoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Jehoshaphat does not learn from his previous mistakes or his previous sins. He should have sought the will of God in the very beginning, but he doesn't. He doesn't. And he agrees to this coalition that violates what he should do. So application, here we see history repeating itself. Josephat failed to learn from his previous sins and mistakes. And if you're anything like me, as you read through the the scriptures, don't you begin to shake your head at Israel and, and say, how many times do they have to do the same thing? How many times do they have to experience the same hardship? How many times do they have to learn the same lesson? Well, it's very easy to point the finger at someone else. And I would just say, how often do we have to learn the same lesson over and over again? How often is it that we fail to have trust in a sovereign, almighty God when we should be trusting in him? How often do we have to commit the same sin over and over and over again before we recognize how hideous it is and actually depart from it? How many of the same mistakes do we find ourselves repeating over time and time and time again? Why is it that we don't learn and profit from our mistakes? Hold that thought. Then 
Jehoram acquires help from the king of Edom, verse 8. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. Now the coalition runs into a significant problem, verse 9. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and when they made a circuitous march of seven days, they marched all the way around and come up from the bottom in order to attack Edom in a, excuse me, Moab in an area that they don't expect it. Uh, for they've got to go through the wilderness, and they're anticipating that, that that's not going to be the way in which they're going to be attacked. However, in going through the wilderness, they find themselves in a predicament, and that is there's no water there. And the response of the king of Jehoram is to blame God's sovereignty. Look at verse 310. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. There is, however, no allusion to these kings seeking the will of God up to this point in the narrative. No one has asked what God wants for them to do. There certainly is no mention of God's decree in telling the kings to go to battle against Moab and to take this path through the wilderness. It's strange for Jehoram to be, bring God into the picture at this point. And Philip Ryken in his commentary says this, and I think it's very, very good. Philip Ryken, I quote, Jehoram was the kind of man who always blames God for his troubles. He had hardly, hardly given one thought of, to God during the whole week, but as soon as things started to go wrong, he took God to task. He held God responsible for bringing the kings together, leading them into the desert, and handing them over to their enemies. In saying this, Jehoram ascribed evil to the God of all goodness, end quote. You see, his perception of God and God's sovereignty was in great error. But it's amazing how quickly people who ignore God and in fact have no real belief in God, blame that very God that they do not believe in as being the cause of their troubles and their hardships and their difficulties. What we want to see is the contrasting response of the king of Jehoshaphat to the dilemma as opposed to the response of Jehoram. Josephat wants to know if there's a prophet of the Lord that can be consulted, verse 11. Josephat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? The reply is yes, Elisha is here, verse 11. Josephat said, is there no prophet of the Lord through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Here is a true prophet. Here is his pedigree. Uh, he was Elijah's servant. This is going to be the last reference to that fact. For from now on, he's going to stand on his own merits. But at this point, he's still standing on Elijah's shoulders. But the point is, Elisha is there. And that's rather a remarkable thing, that Elisha would accompany these three 
kings into battle. He obviously wasn't invited, or they're asking, is there a prophet of the Lord around here? So they didn't seek his help. They didn't seek his direction, nor did they invite him to come along. And yet, he is there. That is God's provision. That is God's grace. That is God's mercy that he has his prophet embedded in this army that is going to go and fight Moab. The kings show respect to Elisha by going to him rather than summoning him to come to them. Verse 12, Josephat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel, Josephat, and the king of Edom went down to him. That's a big deal. So they go down to him rather than have him come up to them. They are putting themselves at his beck and call, if you will. And Elisha immediately confronts Jehoram. Verse 13. Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Why are you here? Why are you here? You and I have nothing in common. I have nothing to say to you. You are not a true worshiper of God. What have I to do with you? Then he says, go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. Go ask them what you should do. Jehoram expresses a twisted view of God for his reply is, no, no. Notice verse 13. Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father, prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, no, I'm not going to consult the prophets of Baal. That's not who I am. I'm not a Baal worshiper. No, I, I'm not going to go to them. And then notice what he says, verse 13. It is the Lord. He's not ascribing what happens to Baal. He's ascribing what happens to the Lord God, Jehovah. No, it is the Lord who has called these things to give them into the hand of Moab. He adamantly rejects the idea of consulting the prophets of Baal. And so Jehoram attributes what is taking place to God's sovereignty. But he does so only to blame God for what has happened. For he says, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. His is a fatalistic view of God's sovereignty. He does not obey God, nor does he seek God's direction. He just pronounces what God is up to. But God's sovereignty is not to be blamed for our miscalculations and self-reliance. When our plans and wisdom fail us, we can't blame God. And that's precisely what he does. But what is most important is, and the lesson that we are to learn, is that Jehoram's response reveals that he does not see any difference in the way that God is dealing with Jehoram from the way in which God is dealing with Jehoshaphat. For notice, he assumes that all three will have the same end. Look at verse 
13. No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. God is going to turn Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and the king of Edom over to Moab in the mind of Jehoram. He sees God in dealing with them all in the exact same way. He fails to see that there's any difference in God's dealing with him and God's dealing with Jehoshaphat. It needs to be made clear that God makes a distinction in his dealing with Jehoram and King Jehoshaphat. So notice how Elisha brings this distinction to clarity. First, Elisha declares that God is the true and living God, unlike Jehoram's view of God. Verse 14, Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives, he he believes in a living God. He doesn't believe in fate. That's not his view of God. He believes in a living, true God. One who knows, one who understands, one who acts, one who hears, one who responds. Secondly, Elisha is a servant of God and empowered by God and to whom Elisha is accountable, unlike Jehoram's view of God. Notice in verse 14, he said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand. So he says, I'm accountable to this God. That's not your view of God. That's not the God you serve. You don't see an accountability. You don't see a responsibility. You don't see an obligation to do the will of God. Thirdly, Elisha declares that Jehoram has no part in God. Verse 14, Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives, for whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, now notice these words, I would neither look at you nor see you. I wouldn't even give you an audience. I wouldn't even listen to what you have to say. I have nothing to do with you. It is only because of Jehoshaphat that any goodness is going to be experienced by Jehoram. Notice, the benefits will come to Jehoram through Jehoshaphat. Look at verse 14. Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, The reason I am going to tell you what you are going to hear is because of Jehoshaphat. Nothing to do with you. You have no part in this. I have no regard for you. Couldn't make it more clear. It's only because of Jehoshaphat. God is not delivering these three kings into the hands of the Moabites. But the three kings are all going to escape the Moabites. But it's only because of Jehoshaphat. We need to keep in mind that God makes a distinction between those 
that belong to him and those who do not. A distinction that so readily we fail to make. Let me say what might sound like some strange things to you, but should be abundantly clear to us. The first is, God does not hear the prayers of those who do not belong to him. Let me say that again. God does not hear the prayers of those who do not belong to him. Christ's intercessory work is only for those that belong to him, not for those who don't belong to him. In John chapter 17, verse 9, Jesus says very specifically, so his disciples get it, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you gave me, for they are yours. I'm praying for them because they belong to you. I'm not praying for the world because they don't belong to you. It is because of our relationship to Jesus Christ that our prayers are heard. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then come with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. The reason that we can approach God in prayer is because of Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is the one who makes the entrance into God's presence possible. But if you don't believe in Jesus, you have no right to approach the throne of grace. In fact, you are banned from that very throne. It's only in association with Christ that we have any standing in our relationship with God. All the goodness that is going to be experienced by Jehoram will be a result of his association with Jehoshaphat. Just as God made a distinction between Jehoshaphat and Ahab years earlier by preserving the life of Jehoshaphat while taking the life of Ahab, so too now God is making a distinction between Jehoshaphat and Jehoram. It is the repeated lesson of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. See it. There is a distinction between those that belong to God and those that do not. Application. The help that Jehoram is seeking from Josephat is purely military help. The reason that Jehoram reaches out to Josephat is because of his army, because of his chariots, because of his horses. He's seeking military help. But the real help that he gets is the help that's associated with Jehovah's God. Jehoshaphat believes in God. That's what's going to be the saving factor in this encounter. What we need to understand is that there is a sanctifying presence that a believer has in relationship to non-believers. It is 
your presence in the workplace that can make a difference in that workplace. It's your presence in the school that can make a difference in that school. It's your presence in a community that can make a distinction in that community. Remember when God is going to destroy the city of Sodom. Abraham asks a question. Will you destroy the righteous along with the wicked? And God says to Abraham, if there are 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom, he'll spare the whole city for the sake of the 10. Striking. If he can find 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom, he'll spare the whole city for the sake of those 10. A more striking statement is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, where it talks about the relationship that a believer has to the unbelieving members of the family. In 1 Corinthians 7, 14, it says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it were, they are holy. And when it says they are holy, it doesn't mean that they are saved, but it means that they are set apart. That by being associated with, by just having a believing mother or a believing father, it brings a whole different relationship of that entire family to God. Not a saving relationship. But there are many benefits that come by having a saved parent, even if you're not saved. There are prayers for you. Their godly example, the way in which they are conducting themselves and seeking to bring honor and glory to God and not beating you and, and not misusing you are benefits that come as a result of being associated with a person of faith. God is providing for the non-believers in your family as a result of providing for you. God's care of you spills over into the benefits that are associated with, with others. I remember my uh, aunt is deathly afraid of flying. Uh, she really, really struggles with the idea of uh, getting on an airplane. Uh, she, she takes all kinds of medications to try to calm her nerves and, and get up the, the strength to uh, get on an airplane. But uh, she'd want to see family, and so she would fly east every now and then in order to be with family. And one day she got on an airplane and lo and behold, there was Billy Graham of all people. She was on the same plane with, plane with Billy Graham. She sat down, she said, I felt so relaxed. He said, this plane's not going down, Billy Graham's on it. She thought, man, as long as I'm on the same plane as Billy Graham, I'm okay. You know, there's some truth to that. There are benefits that are associated with being associated with God's people. Your prayers for them are invaluable. To which Jehoram makes no reply. 
Uh, I'm looking at my, my watch. I'm looking at my papers. I have a whole lot, lot more to say than I have time. Um, so let me go through this as quickly as I can. Number one, uh, so Elisha will tell them what God says due to Elisha's presence. First, the Lord says he will send water, verse 16. He said, thus says Lord, I will make this dry steam bed full of pools. The Lord says that he will accomplish this without a storm. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water. This shows God's power. This shows God's wisdom. And the significance of this is that the Moabites will have no reason to think that there is water here in Edom because there's been no storm. What seems impossible is not difficult at all for the Lord, verse 18. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. While this sounds unfathomable to you, he says, to God it's a nothing. It's no problem. They will bring devastation to Moab. And God's word is fulfilled. I'm going to skip all of that. Lastly, there's desperation on the, on the part of, of Moab. His military's last move, verse 26. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. They, 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 they couldn't break the, the offenses. And so now he has a religious last move, verse 27. Then he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. What an awful response. At least Jehoram's worship of God did not lead him to that point. You see, there, there, are, there are degrees of evil in this passage. Israel is blamed for the action of the king. Verse 27, and there came great wrath against Israel and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. There's a lot of disagreement over how the end of verse 27 should be translated and what it means. Whose wrath is it? Is it God's wrath? Or is it the Edomites' wrath? Why did the Israelites withdraw? Was it because they were abhorrent of all that took place? The one thing we know was that it was not the will of God that Moab be brought under complete submission to Israel. God in his mercy for Jehoshaphat's sake did not allow Moab to destroy the armies of Judah, Israel, or Edom. Furthermore, Moab is severely weakened but God was not going to give the final victory to Israel either, for God was bringing judgment against Israel for their disobedience to God. How sad that the king of Moab did not turn to God, the God of Jehoshaphat, the God of grace. And how sad that Jehoram did not turn to God either. He did not learn the lesson of God's distinction in dealing with him and Jehoshaphat. So in conclusion, let me just say these brief things. First, there's a very real important distinction in the way that God deals with those that belong to him and those that do not belong to him. Many times we fail to recognize that distinction because of the benefits that come to the non-believer as a result of the relationship that they enjoy to a believer. Let me say that again. Many times we fail to recognize the distinction, because of the benefits that come to the non-believer 
as a result of the relationship that they enjoy to a believer. The outcome is the same for Jehoshaphat and Jehoram. But the reason is because of God's grace to Jehoshaphat. A non-believer may pray to God in time of great need. A believer might also be praying for that need in the life of the non-believer, and God may hear the prayer of the believer. And it's easy for the non-believer to think God heard his prayer, but he didn't. He didn't. And we fail to recognize the distinction between what God does in our association with a non-believer apart from what God would do were there no association with that non-believer. So the distinction of God's dealing with his people becomes obscured, not readily seen. That's why these Old Testament passages are, are so important for us to understand the dealings, the workings of God or it tells us specifically about them. But we should never forget the distinction. First and foremost, the eternal distinction. Heaven and hell. Not everyone's going to be in heaven. And hell is not just reserved for the worst of people on the face of the earth. Those who belong to him, those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, those who believe in him as their personal savior have everlasting life. Those who don't have everlasting damnation. There is a distinction. And there are also temporal distinctions. There are distinctions in this life. There are many blessings that you enjoy as being a part of God's people that the world knows nothing of. They can't pray to a God that you can pray to. God is not providing for them in a way in which God is providing for you. God is not watching over and protecting them in a way in which God is protecting you. There is a distinction. There is a distinction. Don't let the complexities of life obscure it. Understand it. The people who belong to God are blessed. And learn this. We are a blessing to others. If you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, one of the greatest gifts that you can give to your family your children that may not know you or to your co-worker is to be praying for them. God will hear your prayers. He won't hear theirs. What a benefit that God placed Elisha in the midst of that army. When they said, is there a no prophet here? Yeah, look, Elisha's here. 
what a benefit, what, what a sanctifying influence for you to be in that school, for you to be in that community, for you to be in that workplace. How you can have an impact upon your coworkers. How your lifestyle can affect the way in which language is being spoken in the workplace. What kind of jokes are being told? What kind of thoughts are being promoted? And what the knowledge of the true and living God is. Understand that there's a distinction. And understand that we should use that distinctiveness to be a blessing to others. But always keep in mind that that blessing is coming not because of them, but the grace and mercy of God who often works through his people. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to see this morning that there is a, a great distinction between those that belong to you and those that don't. And I pray, Lord, that, that no one here would have any false hope or false expectation. Maybe they know a lot of blessings in their life because they've been a part of the church their whole life. Maybe they've grown up in a Christian home. Maybe, maybe they have just ridden the coattails of believers. And as such, they've been spared much. But may they never be lulled into thinking that somehow they are being blessed for their own goodness, for their own acceptance. May we understand that there is a blessing that comes in association, but it's limited. It doesn't bring eternal life. and It doesn't bring ultimate acceptance. Oh, Lord, help us to learn from our own mistakes. Help us to learn from our own past. Help us to be a transformed people, rejoicing in the privileges which are ours to belong to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.